Hi, I'm Max Bergman. And I'm Donatien Rui. And this is The Europhile, a podcast where we look at Europe through a Washington lens. Welcome back to another episode of The Europhile. We have, as always, a great show for you today. We are back from a long European-style vacation in which both Max and I visited the continent we love and will briefly share some of our impressions from that. Then we'll turn to a conversation with Mushtaba Rahman, Managing Director at Eurasia Group, for a conversation about European politics after the invasion of Ukraine and the EU's geopolitical trajectory. We hope you enjoy the show. All right, Max, how was your vacation and where was it? It was great. I have to say that for many of our, our European visiting fellows were quite shocked at the exodus of Washington in August. You know, I think many of them were scratching their heads and said, well, I, I thought Americans didn't take vacations. And it's like, well, Some do. we're working from home or we're, you know, <laughs> but in Washington, August is really the dead month. I actually didn't go to the continent. I, I went to, well. I did go to Europe though. I went to, <laughs> uh, to Ireland. The weather was quite refreshing after, you know, suffering through another D.C. summer. But I want to talk a little bit about Irish neutrality, which, you know, sort of got under my skin a little bit. Now, what Ireland, a way to enjoy your vacation. Yeah, you know, you know, you start reading about things and, and what, what the country is discussing. Earlier this summer, Ireland sort of began a process to perhaps rethink and relook at whether to maintain its existing state of, quote unquote, neutrality. Now, this is sort of similar to what uh, Sweden and Finland did. Sweden and Finland, of course, decided to join NATO. In thinking in, in reading some of the articles about the debates on Irish neutrality, it really reminded me, I was in a conversation, an, an off-the-record conversation with a, with a Swedish official before the war, and I had mentioned that Sweden was neutral. And this official basically bit my head off. And it's like, no, Sweden is not neutral. Sweden's part of the European Union. We just don't belong to NATO, a military alliance. Uh, and they've been part of what, the anti-ISIS coalition, and they, so they've deployed, they've deployed, which is not the case been, for Ireland. Yeah, and they've been part of other other actions. But but it was also important for the, you know, the, the point was made that Sweden's part of the European Union, and the European Union takes positions on things. What is the European Union doing right now? It's providing a lot of funding to Ukraine. You know who's also contributing to that funding? Ireland. So the notion to me that you're neutral but in the EU, I think it's just frankly absurd. I don't buy it. I don't think it doesn't make any sense. And it's also Ireland, compared to a country like Austria, and I think it's also probably absurd for Austria to be, quote unquote, a neutral country in the EU. And it's just Ireland, Austria, and Malta currently. But at least Austria has some UN entities, has the IAEA, uh, UNIDO. None of those exist in, in, in Dublin. I think there's a real need for Ireland to really rethink its its neutral position here, because you know who does the air policing for the Republic of Ireland to protect Irish airspace? If let's say there was a hijacking of a, of a civilian airliner, guess who they would have to get on the phone? They would have to call Westminster. They would have to call the Brits because it's the RAF that basically takes that, uh, that role on uh, at the behest of the Irish government because the Irish government doesn't have an air force. And the whole point of neutrality, I mean, I sort of understand the historic roots here, was rooted in Irish independence. And when Ireland becomes uh, independent, gains initial status in the 1920s, but it doesn't really become a full republic until actually after World War II. But it was a, claiming neutrality was a way of distancing itself from the UK. And what strikes me about Ireland is how much of a 
you know, how independent of the UK it is, especially now with the UK not in the EU. And in some ways, Ireland, I think, should just break, embrace its European future, its, uh, its European trajectory, and recognize that neutrality is sort of a relic of it trying to distinguish itself from the UK. And that by being part of the EU, since it has been since the 90s, part of the European community since the 1970s, it's not really neutral anymore. You're part of you're part of a club that takes positions on things like China, on thing on all sorts of issues. And that's great. But I think, well, you mentioned the historical roots. Those are definitely not to be diminished. They're really important to, I think, Irish, the Irish ethos and the way they've evolved, how hard they fought for this independence. I think there's also to try to put myself in their shoes, there's a difference in the vision and the interpretation of neutrality. Taking positions on the relationship with China, with the United States, et cetera, et cetera, I think they view as different from neutrality. I think they increasingly neutrality has been interpreted narrowly to be military. There's a little piece of constitutional, um, there's a constitutional article that talks about, if I remember correctly, how the military personnel cannot be forced to deploy abroad, which I find kind of interesting because isn't that the point? But they have a very small military anyway. So I think it's they take this as as really the narrow interpretation to focus on the military. Now, that doesn't mean they shouldn't rethink it. But based on that, it's I think it's understandable that it takes a while to do away with your own perception of a neutral country when it comes to military intervention. They have deployed in peacekeeping missions, a lot of UN peacekeeping missions. So there are Irish troops abroad, yeah. just no military active combat military intervention. On Austria, I will say, yes, they host UN institutions and a lot of other things. At the same time, they have over the years, and I, I don't mean to constantly be the Austria basher here, but over the years, they have used this quote unquote neutral status to get away with a lot of things with economic ties to Russia, with a lot of spying across Austria, with really problematic um, far right connections with Russia and other places. So I also don't want to no, blow it too too much. I, I, the, the one thing I would say about Austria, just to put it maybe in a slightly better light than Ireland, I think, is that, well, despite the pro-Russian ties, is that neutrality was the price of, of Austria regaining its independence in, 19, I think, 1955. It's also was, you know, a frontline state in the Cold War such that it became a place of, you know, Vienna was a hot scene for international espionage, but also for international dialogue. So it was kind of an east-west divide, more on the western side, but still uh, its neutrality enabled it to play that role, and you could argue protected it in in a potential uh, military conflict. Now, I think that's still a, totally a relic of the past, and there's this thing called the European Union that was created after the end of the Cold War, and they should be rid of that. But I think, you know, just maybe a, a couple quick things on Ireland. It does benefit from NATO. It does benefit, obviously, from the UK having a major military. It is actually in a very geopolitically uh, sensitive area in the GI-UK gap in the North Atlantic that, you know, if there was going to be a war with Russia, there would be Russian subs, you know, off the coast of, of, of Ireland. So that is something that that it, it, it frankly does benefit from existing in a context of a North Atlantic treaty organization in the European Union and, and transatlantic ties and the 
U.S. security presence, but it doesn't pull its weight. And I think this also applies to just maybe quickly on on tax policy, where low corporate Irish taxes, which are which I learned when I on my travels, was basically a legacy of Ireland didn't really have mu- didn't really have much industrial production that was in the north, uh, and so when it came to set tax rates, it wasn't sort of crucial to its government revenue, so it could set these tax rates really low, but. That has sort of made it basically a tax haven for Apple, for pharmaceutical companies that are basically depriving the American uh, taxpayers, the American government, from a lot of tax revenue. And what strikes me is when we have President Biden and others going to Ireland, that we sort of treat Ireland with this, you know, great affection. And I had great affection toward Ireland. The people are wonderful. You have a great time. But then we don't you know, maybe prod it enough and don't really treat it like a real country, which it is. And it's a major player in the EU, particularly in all sorts of, of issues. And, you know, right now it's contributing to the European peace facility, but it, it's doing so just for a quote unquote non-lethal funds. Now, let me tell you something about lethal and non-lethal. As someone at the State Department that would have to make determinations sometimes about lethal and non-lethal, there's no real definition. It's entirely made up. Is a gun turret lethal? Well, it depends on your definition. Money is fungible. And so the money Ireland is putting into supporting Ukraine, to give it credit, is supporting Ukraine. And that's great. But I think it needs to maybe have a more... rethink where it's standing. And that's what it's doing. It's having this conversation about its neutrality. And my sense is the status quo will remain just getting the tenor of the debate. But in part, we're not asking it to change. And I think that's probably a mistake. And it's not about asking Ireland to join NATO, but it's about asking Ireland, I think, to maybe uh, step up and play a more important role on the international stage. Sure. I think there are a lot of deep economic questions involved in that, though, because you have something in the ballpark of, what, 10,000 military personnel in Ireland right now. And it has been a bit of an economic miracle in Europe over the last 20 years. It was nowhere near where it is now, partly thanks to, obviously, the tax structure that they have. That turns out clearly to have been a great decision on their part. But I think there are enough actors involved in this that don't want to shake that nest too much because we see other places in Europe that are struggling enough. Again, this is not to give an excuse. I just think these are considerations that are ongoing over there and across Europe as well. It would involve very serious trade-offs in what they're they're facing. They're also facing a very serious housing crisis in Ireland that they have to fix. And the current political environment is very shaky. The coalition that is together at this time, I don't think has a political capital to do something like this. It's not impossible, but I think we're looking at status quo for a bit longer until somebody wants to do something different. But if you look at the polls and you imagine, I don't know, Sinn Féin being anywhere near where they were in the last election, I think the other two party, Fine Gael and Fianna Foyle, are looking at this thinking, there is no way we can make this kind of political sea change. Maybe just last point, which we talked about my Irish vacation for, for too long. Everyone should go to Ireland. It's a great country. Oh, it's amazing. It's yeah, beautiful. And they're also, I think the Irish diplomats, when they're in and serving for the European Union, are incredibly effective, particularly so here in effective. Washington. Because During Brexit, they were everywhere. Yeah. The Irish accent's wonderful. They're incredibly smart. And they're incredibly, they understand the importance of the European Union because look what the EU has done to the Irish economy. And also that the sort of anti-colonialism, uh, no offense to our British colleagues, but you know, 800 years of oppression, uh, actually is a very good message. Um, and they can, I think, speak not only here in Washington, but but to the quote-unquote global south quite effectively. So I, this is more about us in Washington thinking about Ireland 
in a more mature way, actually. This is more about us, really, not them. But like, because we go there, and we're like, oh, look, Irish. We're all Irish. And yeah. It's like, mm, it's a, you know. I, I think that's right. It's a question of vision of what it could do, and what it could be as a partner for the U.S. inside the European Union and alongside NATO, not in NATO, rather than being satisfied with yeah. what we get now. Well, uh, did you have a good vacation? Yes, I was in Sweden, actually, for the first time. So it's gorgeous. Absolutely gorgeous over there. And the weather was indeed much better than in Washington. <laughs> yeah. Did you have any uh, grand takeaways of Swedish neutrality? <laughs> did you come away? <laughs> no, not anymore. I talked to some to a couple people, and I think I said something like, congratulations on your, on your NATO, <laughs> NATO membership. And someone was like, oh, are we in now? <laughs> it's like, okay. Yes. Not, not yet. Not yet. Well, close. Close, close. Yeah. I did. I told them I'm not entirely sure where each piece of ratification is at, but you're pretty close. Yeah. So. No, they're close. My, my biggest problem with Sweden are their very Soviet-style alcohol purchasing laws. Oh my god. Yeah. Yeah. But yes, that was as a Belgian. That was uh, well, Belgian American. Now, that was a bit of a shock. No, it's crazy. You can't <laughs> buy alcohol on Sundays, uh, and you can only buy it at like state communist yep. stores that. That when but you we do not endorse. When you bring this up to the Swedes, they are super pro the system. System will like it. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And but uh, it's it's a nightmare. We the always, rest is beautiful though. Yeah. I yeah. had and delicious food because a friend of mine went to Norway last year and she was very disappointed. And then in Sweden, the cuisine is delicious. It is. It's, you know, they, they figured out how to, to squeeze the most out of their ingredients. Well, Nordic cuisine, we have right now in this room, we have Danes, Finns, other people looking at us. But the Nordic cuisine is actually Can really be good. good. Really good. Can be good. So anyway, people should go travel to Europe. Yes. Uh, Ireland, Sweden, both great destinations. Yes. And this is probably a good segue to, we probably should have segued a long time ago to our interview with Mushtaba Rahman, who's one of the, the leading experts and sort of go-to analysts on all things uh, European Union. We are thrilled to be joined by Mustafa Rahman for a conversation about European politics after the war in Ukraine and Europe's future geopolitical trajectory. Midge is Managing Director for Europe at Political Risk Research and Consulting Firm Eurasia Group, where he oversees the firm's analysis and advisory work on the continent and leads the firm's country analysis on the United Kingdom in France. Prior to joining Eurasia Group, Mujtaba worked at the European Commission's Director General for Economic and Financial Affairs and at the UK Treasury. He is also a senior visiting fellow at the Lund School of Economics, where he teaches political risk to graduate students. Mushtaba, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I want to start by asking you about your recent piece in the Financial Times. You also had one in, in Politico about the Polish elections. Your piece in the Financial Times was sort of pushing back on the this fear that has sort of emerged in Europe that right-wing populism and far-right parties are sort of taking over Europe with elections in Italy, Sweden, Finland, uh, and others. Um, maybe you could kind of outline your argument there and, and why you think that that threat is sort of overrated. I think, Max, there's a lot of dot connecting and extrapolation that's happening. I think, you know, there's a general uh, sense that Europe is moving to the right. And that is happening both at the national and also at the European level. And that is born out through examples across 
the EU. So obviously we have right-wing governments in Italy, Poland and Hungary. Uh, we have governing coalitions in Finland and Sweden. Uh, the AFD far-right populist party is surging in Germany. Uh, there's an agrarian populist party in the Netherlands. Uh, the right-wing people's party is doing really well in Estonia. Austria's far-right freedom party is going to do very well, may even win legislative elections next year. If you look at long-distance polls for Marine Le Pen in the 2027 race, there's a sense that she's absolutely competitive. She'll be in the runoff. Maybe she can even win if you believe the polls that are currently being published. I think what folks are doing is they're looking across all of these trends and then they're making a general argument that if you look at what's happening nationally with a view to European elections next year, there's just a risk the European Union is going to lurch or drift to the far right. And I think my own sense is, notwithstanding all of those examples I've given you, that argument is effectively exaggerated. It's effectively overblown. And there's a number of reasons for that. The first is there is no general trend. So we've looked kind of very concretely at the political dynamics across all countries in the EU, as well as in European elections next year. And the first point to make is there just is no trend. There is no trend. What you have is the performance of populist parties in specific countries doing well due to very context-specific national circumstances. And Italy is a great example here, where Maloney is obviously in government since October last year. But if you look at some of the reasons why that was able to come about, it's to do with the various constituencies that were participating in Draghi's government that allowed Maloney to effectively become the single opposition to that administration that ultimately paved and facilitated the way for her to form power. You know, if you look at France, mid-run polls in the previous two races have always exaggerated Le Pen's performance on the day and actually polling pretty consistently always overestimates the likelihood that she will win. I think the two-round system is also a very important structural buffer and assuming the centre can organise around a credible candidate, and I suspect they will, someone like Edouard Philippe, I suspect the centre will ultimately win the presidential elections in 2027, and so on and so forth. You know, I can go through a very large number of examples to reinforce this base case view I have that we're not seeing a trend. What you're seeing is specific instances of the far right doing well. And in many instances, the idea that somehow, you know, there's a kind of populist resurgence that's ultimately going to come to dominate decision-making in Brussels is really an over-exaggerated hypothesis. I have to say, when I first read your piece, I was a little bit skeptical just because having watched the first wave of populism arrivals in Europe in you know, 2014, 2015, it feels very similar. One thing that feels different to me this time is it, there seems to be more willingness on the part of these far-right parties and right-wing, hardcore right-wing parties to align at the European level, which I didn't see in the first wave. So that's that's where my concern would come in, is they might have come onto the national stage through very discreet national contacts. But what happens if they're able to really align at the European level and gain momentum in that way? Is that something that you're accounting for? No, and I'm not worried about it, honestly. I know, so we're not consensus on this view. We're pretty counter-consensus. But I'm, the reason I'm not worried about it, and I'd say, you know, I think there's like a 5% risk of a populist majority 
in the European elections emerging to dominate Parliament next year, 5 to 10%. And, and that 5 to 10%, I would define both as a formal coalition, but also informal cooperation and coordination between various right-wing parties on specific pieces of legislation. I just don't think that's a meaningful risk. You don't see it happening at all in the context of the current parliament. What you do have is centrist and far-right parties on some issues voting in the same way. And the conclusion people draw from that is that there's coordination or cooperation, but there's not. More, more I think, more importantly, to be concrete here, the numbers just don't exist for the kind of majority or even informal cooperation between the centre and the far-right in European elections next year, no matter which way they fall. So what do we have in the European Parliament? 705 MEPs, which means majority is 353. If you look at so the centre-right European People's Party is the absolute necessary participant in any coalition that involves parties further to the right. If you have the EPP cooperating with the uh, European Conservative and Reformist, slightly further to the right, that gets them to, what, 248, 250 MP, MEPs maximum, well below a majority. Even if the numbers were to work between the two and they won't, even if Italy and Maloney outperforms expectations and the ECR delivers a meaningful increase in their numbers, you're not going to get a majority between the two of these parties. But then you're still talking about cooperation in Brussels between parties that are complete opponents at the national level. Poland is the example I use in the Financial Times piece, but it would effectively imply cooperation between Tuscan law and justice, which you're never going to get. No. So, so then the question becomes, if the EPP and the ECR can't do it, can you fold in parties even further to the right of the ECR, so identity and democracy. Okay, but then you're talking about Le Pen's La Rassemblement Nationale and the alternative for Deutschland. And even then you only get to 320, 321, 322. You're still not getting a majority and you're further complicating the dynamic around EPP cooperation and participation with the groups that I know the EPP's leadership is absolutely not interested in. And so... Whether it's to do with the kind of the, the, the kind of the core substantive mandate these populist parties subscribe to, and whether or not you can get them to align in Brussels when they're not collaborative at the national level, or you're just talking about the straight numbers, there's just no way you can draw up scenarios that are conceivably credible in my view that makes it likely this this majority or this ad hoc group that informally cooperates is, is, is a meaningful risk. I think this was a big risk in 2019. We were very worried about it. The last time around, we did a lot of work at Eurasia Group on the risk of a populist majority in the EP, resulting in a kind of atrophy within the EU because you really impede decision-making, you erode the legitimacy of the institutions and you subtract from, you know, ultimately public opinion and support for the European project. This year, I just I just don't see... I don't see the risk at the European level. And then my final point would be at the national level, I just think the trend is also a lot more nuanced. And Italy's the example I, I use in the piece where I actually think there is important movement to the centre on specific areas of policy, foreign policy, European policy, fiscal and broader economic policy. That's just completely disregarded by folks that are trying to draw this line, extrapolate and effectively say, look, 
because some of these parties are moving a bit to the right on questions around immigration and climate, that is consistent with this idea of a general shift of the entire European Union to the right across all policy areas. And I just, I just think the picture is a lot more complex and nuanced than that. Yeah, it, it seems that there's a tendency to want to just sort of project from what we saw 10 years ago or, or, or even five years ago with uh, far-right populist parties emerging in the wake of the euro crisis, migration crisis, and really um, disrupting the kind of traditional political parties. But now a lot of these parties have sort of become part of the political scene, are no longer so insurgent. Many have tried to move to the center. But one of the things that we've seen is that the kind of anti-EU nature of many of these parties, no, some still really hold on to it, but has has sort of been toned down. And that even, you know, Maloney, for instance, there was a lot of concern when she came in that there would be a lot of tension between uh, Rome and Brussels. But that hasn't really seemed to be the case. And so I'm curious if maybe you could talk to that and also maybe pull in the UK here as well. Obviously, I think Brexit has had uh, an effect on these far-right parties in Europe, making them less hostile to Brussels. But I, I'm curious what, what the, what's been happening also in the UK when it comes to the EU. Yeah, so Max, on this question, why has the, the nature of, of populism, especially towards Europe, changed over the course of the last decade? To my mind, there are two explanatory factors. They're both structural. The first is Brexit and the precedent set by Brexit. Brexit's been a complete disaster economically and politically for the UK. That's apparent to everybody except the very small, or or rather, sorry, I should perhaps say large constituency of elites within the UK that supported the project. And that, of course, has, it's done a couple of things. Firstly, it has reinforced and and socialised the benefits of membership of the European Union and made that very apparent for the likes of folks like Le Pen, Maloney and others. And you've seen their platforms moderate as a result. And the second, so the, the Brexit precedent and the ongoing struggles within the UK, I think is a meaningful structural factor that plays into this question. The second, of course, is the uh, creation of the Recovery and Resilience Facility. This is a game changer, right? If you're talking about 10.5% of Italian GDP over three years in fiscal transfers, that's a meaningful amount of money to retrofit, repurpose, digitize, and green your economy That's a massive, absolute, to my mind, game changer and something that is absolutely central to Maloney's mandate for her to keep both her coalition partners and public opinion on side. That's a meaningful amount of money that we're talking about. And that, I think, has also changed the nature of the cost-benefit analysis. Absolutely, in Maloney's case, Amy Kasman has a really interesting good piece in the FT today on, uh, you know, is Italy going to squander the 191.5 billion that it's due from this facility. And I think my view is the answer to that question is no, she's not. It's too important. Too important in a context where Italy is very dependent on capital market financing, where ECB support is waning, where debt servicing costs are increasing, where there are meaningful economic challenges, inflation, cost of living, etc. In that context, the last thing Maloney wants to do is squander 10.5% of Italian GDP, that comes for free. No, and use that money as a vehicle to effectively create political space to implement reforms. Of course, she understands are necessary, but that are difficult given the constituencies that she supports and, and, and that are currently responsible for governing in Italy. So I think those are the two factors. 
they're the major factors that explain that moderation on Europe and economic policy to the benefit and to the credit of the EU. On the UK, look, I think we're effectively in a holding pattern. You've got a semi, I want to say semi-sensible leader. You know, kind of my view on Sunak is has become a bit more negative over time. I think when he won, Sunak's model was interesting, right? He wins and he clearly, the model was clearly deliver a number of policy wins and use those policy wins as a vehicle to effectively stamp your authority on the parliamentary party. And the policy wins war, stabilisation of the economy and the 55 billion fiscal package to effectively correct all the idiotic mistakes that Liz Truss and Kwarteng made, deliver the policy win on the Windsor framework, the reset with Macron, the articulation of the five tests. And you began to see this sense that actually, you know, there is a Sunak method here. It's technocratic, it's focused on policy and competence, and that's actually delivering a sense that the parliamentary party may have a chance, a narrow path to victory uh, that remains open next year. It all fell apart after local elections, right? Because there's a 20-point gap Sunak came in, it shrank to 15, and then it opened up again. And as that gap has opened up again, of course, the mad parts of the parliamentary party are beginning to reassert themselves. And what we're seeing through that process is that Sunak is actually a pretty weak leader politically. He's making mistakes with the parliamentary party, and he's not learning from them. He's appeasing Johnson, he's appeasing Truss, he's appeasing the right-wing constituency, where I think he should be strong, and he's not proving capable of being strong. I think, you know, the sense in Europe on Sunak is he's okay and he's pretty sensible, but the party's mad. And that's right, I think. Because the party is crazy, there's a ceiling on how far Sunak can go on the agenda with Europe and the reset. And they understand that. And so, you know, we're kind of in this weird equilibrium. It's a bad equilibrium. There's not that much that he can do. You see he's now, he's going crazy on the environmental agenda, he may go crazy on the European, uh, the on the ECHI, European Convention on Human Rights. And so I think basically we're all in a holding pattern waiting for a Labour government, which is the strong, you know, we've got a 90% probability of a Labour government coming into power next year. I think the Europeans are also waiting for that. And then, and then I think the question will be, there's a bunch of things Labour is going to do that they're talking about. That's obvious. The more interesting analytical question is how much further Labour will go and how much further they'll go in their first term. And that, I think, is to be seen because it's a consequence of do they deliver a majority? Where is public opinion? What's the appetite within the EU to move? There's a lot of investment happening behind the scenes between the Labour shadow front bench and European, very senior people on the European side. I wouldn't call it a negotiation, but lots of very interesting conversations that are happening. And so, you know, to my mind, that's kind of where the energy is. It's less about what the Tories can do and can Sunak survive And it's more about the policy agenda of the Labour government when they come in. I'd say that's a pretty smart move from anyone in Brussels. You have to talk to Labour just on the off chance that they come in next year. And Sunak is increasingly facing personal scandals as well. They're really impacting his mandate. But since we're talking about one member of the EU coming out of it, we talked about the economic realities in a lot of places in Europe. I think that's a good place to start talking about some of the other work that you've done. So some of the writing you've done in Poland, for example, and moved to European reform. In one of those pieces, you talk about the necessary deep reform that have, that has to happen for Ukraine accession, for example, just for future enlargement as well. How do you see the political appetite 
in Europe today. We've seen also out of Italy calls for reform to the Stability and Growth Pact from multiple ministries and interestingly from the Defense Ministry as well. How do you see the appetite for it and the potential paths to reform uh, in the next few years, which would be necessary for anywhere close to accession for Ukraine? Yeah, so to, to tie together this question with the previous point, you know, the first thing I'll say is there's not huge thinking about the UK precisely because the European agenda is just massively overloaded, as it always is at this point of the cycle. Elections next year, mandate for the commission needs to be completed before those elections. There's a bunch of stuff to do. And the two to three most important things are, I think, getting alignment within Europe on the China question, getting alignment within Europe on the Russia-Ukraine question, both regarding the war, but also regarding consequences for the EU, and then I think, you know, kind of the fiscal architecture or undergirdings of the EU, and they're massive, they're, you know, they're highly political, very contentious. And von der Leyen, I think, wants to get all three under her belt before the second mandate starts. On Ukraine, Ukraine is the dominant question, right? Enlargement to Ukraine is going to be the single most important contribution the European Union geopolitically kind of makes to this war because that's where Europe has value and you guys will be much closer to the debate on the US than I am but my sense from talking to folks in the US administration is they like the European Union engagement on the Ukraine issue especially from the commission because they think number one the commission can mobilize money and number two the commission can mobilize the European perspective and those are two meaningful things where Europe has soft power or comparative advantage that the Americans don't have. So, you know, yes, the EU will do a bunch of interesting things with its European peace facility, and maybe one day there'll be F-16s, and we've done a bunch of things on tanks. But regardless, you know, kind of the, the European Union's hard contribution to the conflict is never going to be as robust as the Americans, where the Europeans are going to add much more meaningful value is going to be on this question of money, on reform, and on this question of ultimately you know, kind of integrating Ukraine into the EU. Now, integrating Ukraine into the EU, to me, it's just a massive issue. And I've worked at EG for kind of 12, 13 years now, and the work is very cyclical. So when I joined, it was Greek financial crisis. And after the GFC, it was uh, Ukraine won 2013, then it was refugees in 2015, then Brexit, then COVID, and now we're at Ukraine too. To my mind, the reason I talk about that context is I think enlargement is the next two to four year issue. I think it is the dominant political issue that is going to eat up airtime. It's already doing it. And I think is going. this is it. This is the issue that is going to define politics in Europe for the next two to four years because it's massive. It's not just about Ukraine. This is a proxy for the future of the EU. That is the debate. What is the future EU going to look like? And the Ukraine question is a catalyst for that conversation. And that conversation opens up tremendous strategic differences between the leaders of the EU, most importantly, France and Germany. France has spent all summer thinking about the strategic high politics of Ukraine enlargement, meaning, what does that mean? That means, how does France lead an EU of 35 countries? What are the institutional innovations you need to implement to ensure France can lead an EU of 35? You know, why is, why is Macron supportive of NATO membership for Ukraine? Or 
um, EU membership for Ukraine because they're making a down payment today in the view that Ukraine will be a member in 10 years' time. And when it's an important member of the EU in 10 years' time, Ukraine will remember the commitment that France made 10 years prior. They're much more strategic. Germany is not thinking about the question in that way, right? Germany's thinking, look at the treaties. Do we require treaty change? Do we need an institutional overhaul? Can we kind of sneak Ukraine in under the auspices of Lisbon? You already see a big difference. You know, it, it reveals the different strategic mentality in both member states and how they're approaching this question. But the question is so fundamental because it's not really about Ukraine. As I say, it's about the future of the EU. How do you, you know, I think the price of admitting Ukraine in the Balkans is going to be a firm no to Turkey. Big geopolitical implications. Can they get aligned around that? How do you organize an EU of 35 countries in terms of governance? How do you organize voting and the weights? How do you organize the European Parliament and the number of commissioners? How do you organize finances? You know, if you think about the implications of the EU budget for net contributors versus net recipients, and there's no alignment. No, you go to the chancellery, they'll tell you every country that's a net recipient becomes a net contributor. Ukraine is an agrarian superpower. Its implications of joining for agricultural policy, which sounds silly, but where vested interests in Europe are absolutely meaningful and very mobile, not least in France, are, are, are absolutely existential, right? And so on and so forth. And so, you know, you're seeing Macron now. Macron is going to give a big intervention before the 6th of October, trying to tee up the debate on enlargement. And he's beginning to leak some of these ideas. Did this 18-page interview in Le Point. He did this big speech to ambassadors. You know, variable geometry. This is something where the Fran French and the Germans don't agree. How do you organize an EU of 35 countries? Can you have a core group that can just advance and you have an outer group that doesn't. And what does that mean for the UK, etc.? I can go on and on and on, but you guys can see like this is so profound and so existential for how the how the EU thinks about itself and what the EU is and will become. I think it's issue number one, two, and three. And then everything else kind of follows. And you'll see that, I think, in the October Granada European Council where leaders begin to get at this issue in, you know, Ukraine has to do a bunch of stuff as well, right? They're not going to let Ukraine yeah. in for free. But the bigger question is what the EU needs to do to itself. The last thing I'll say, sorry, I've been just waffling on, but it was put to me by a very senior official in Paris, and this is absolutely the right way to think about it. Leaders have to be convinced that the EU won't collapse under its own weight if they admit the Western Balkans and Ukraine into the European fold, right? So, that's the big debate that they're now that they're now starting. It's very exciting, but I think it's also just going to dominate everything for the next several years. Right. I think we, we put out a report looking at enlargement and making the argument that Ukraine has a lot to do, but really this is a big question about, uh, really it's about what the EU is going to do to let right. Ukraine in. And then uh, especially on the fiscal side, I think is going to be a huge challenge. Maybe one final question to, to close out. Uh, so we're, you know, a podcast based in, in Washington, D.C., in the U.S. Now, the U.S. has not focused that much on the EU uh, historically, has been rather dismissive. What would you say to a Washington audience about the, the future role of the EU? And essentially, is the EU worth paying attention to from kind of a, a Washington strategic perspective? I absolutely think so. So this is a kind of pitch for why the European Union is important, right? This is what you're asking. If you think about all of the strategic priorities of Washington, D.C., 
whether it's the green transition and the you know the inflation reduction act and using government policy to effectively incentivize private capital to facilitate that green transition if it's thinking through long-term relations with Beijing and how to counter Chinese state capitalism, but also the emergence of China in many, many international theatres and contexts, whether that's Russia, whether it's Africa and elsewhere, on all of the major policy priorities, whether it's the Ukraine war and how to address and think through implications of Ukraine not militarily being able to uh, recapture all, all of its territory and what that ultimately potentially means for negotiations, etc. I mean, the European Union is the ally in the room without question, right? First among equals. And so to my mind, I think it's really important for collaboration and alignment between the two blocks for all of the geopolitical priorities that they face. Also just important for the two to talk about all the potential sources of tension and conflict and risk between the two, in particular on the trade and the technology agenda. I don't know whether that's a compelling answer, Max. To me, it's very self-evident that the EU is very important. And it's important as the EU goes through this process of renewal and reform that the Americans engage in that and understand that process and try and influence and direct that process because that's going to be really very important and very meaningful. To me, it's kind of obvious and self-evident, but the fact you asked the question is interesting. <laughs> it has yeah. to be asked. I think the one other thing that Washington struggles with is the EU's constantly sort of evolving and changing. And, and I think Ukraine is sort of really, really demonstrated that by the EU suddenly discovering that it can provide lethal security assistance and, and its role on sanctions and other things. It really pretends the EU, I think, becoming a bit more of a, a, a geopolitical actor as well. I think... It strikes me, too, as a little bit of intellectual laziness on the part of people who should be engaging with the EU. It is a complicated structure, and having to relearn a bunch of different institutions, who does what, is complicated, also because competencies are fractured in different different parts. But we're at a point where it's, it's no longer something they can avoid. They, there needs to be an intellectual effort to understand how the EU works, at least at the top level, who does what. And where to go, as you said, to influence the process, get your points across that this is absolutely necessary. But instead of having to you know, read a lot about it, they can just listen to our podcast. And Mustafa, I want to thank you so much for, for joining us. It was a fascinating and really excellent wide ranging conversation. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. That's it for today's episode. As always, if you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. If you are interested in more analysis on European politics, please visit CSIS.org, where you will find a recent interview with the German ambassador to the United States on Germany's new China strategy. You may also be interested in our sister podcast, Russian Roulette, which covers the latest on Vladimir Putin's Russia and the ongoing war in Ukraine. We recently interviewed longtime Russia hand and my former boss, National Security Specialist Rose Gottemiller, for a wide-ranging conversation on Russian politics, the war in Ukraine, NATO, and nuclear non-proliferation. We encourage you to check it out. You will find links to all this work in the episode description. Finally, please check out a new executive education course, Beyond the Battlefield, Global Implications of Russia's War in Ukraine, where we will unpack how Russia's continued war in Ukraine has been impacting domestic and foreign policies inside Russia throughout the transatlantic community and across the globe. 
please consider registering if you are an experienced professional working on topics in the development, defense, or international security space. It is a must attend. Our thanks to our producer, Michael Kohler, and also to Sarah Stromberg and Otto Svensson for coordinating and researching this episode. We'll be back soon with another assessment of Europe through a Washington lens. Until next time.